book of Genesis chapter 1. I do ask that you would continue to pray for me as I stand before you this morning. Uh, the life of ministry in and of itself is a difficult task. You have big responsibilities. Uh, the chiefest among them is the feeding of God's sheep. And it's not something that I take very lightly. I'm not saying that I haven't at times. And the Lord has chastened me and rebuked me in those instances. But it's a very important task. And there's often uh, m much preparation that goes into feeding God's sheep. So the ministry alone is hard, but it, it makes it even harder when you're a bivocational minister. And that means I have a secular job and other responsibilities that fill my time. So this week has been one of those weeks that has uh, just seemed to be exhausted at work and um, coming home. And I've got responsibilities at home. And then this weekend we had to go to a church meeting. And so I spent my time studying for, you know, preaching yesterday at that meeting. I come home yesterday afternoon and messed around with the boys. And then towards the end of, end of the evening, uh, I sat down and, and started to study uh, for the sermon today. And I kicked back in my recliner and probably 10 minutes later I fell asleep. And Leslie woke me up at 4.30 this morning <laughs> in my recliner and took me to bed so as far as as far as studying for this message there's uh, actively studying for this message uh, there's been very little and you know I I got up this morning I said I fell asleep and and so none of the preparation that I need is there and so I, I, I said well I could just preach on what I preached on yesterday and uh, use it use it for this and, and I and I felt convicted I said, you know, that's, that's really relying on the arm of the flesh. Uh, I need to rely on the Lord uh, because I felt like this is what he's laid on my heart. So I do need your prayers that the Lord would bless in spite of my lack of study. But then again, somebody asked a preacher one time, how long did it take you to prepare for that sermon? And his reply was a lifetime. And a lifetime of study literally goes into every message because you're pulling on things that you already know things that you've studied in the past. So it's not that I haven't studied uh, for this message because I spent my life preparing for this message, but I haven't actively studied specifically for this message, if that makes any sense. So we need the God's grace this morning for all this to come together in a way that would glorify and honor Him because that's, that's, that's the meat of this. We've studied God. This grand and glorious being that is the sovereign ruler of the universe. God is great. God is good. God is merciful. God is kind. God is just. God is holy. God is full of power. God is full of knowledge and understanding. And there is no finding out of his wisdom. And when we think of how great God is, the simple contemplation should leave man where it left David. When I consider the heavens and the works of thy hand, what is man? that thou art mindful of him. We should be brought to a place of humility. We should be brought to a place where we understand that great God is so great and we are such miserable and wretched creatures. God is a glorious subject. And it is one that we should often engage upon. You can never, ever exhaust the study of God. 
if you were to spend your lifetime searching the scriptures over and over and over again, looking for the different dynamics and the characteristics and the unique prospects that, that make up God, you would spend your entire life. And when you were giving out your last breath as you are giving up the ghost, you would have to confess, I know nothing as I ought to know. Paul says, if a man thinks he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing as he ought to know. And when we think we have God figured out, we need to hit the book again because you've barely scratched the surface. And that's why I've spent so much time over the past two months looking at who God is because it is fundamental to your faith to understand the great God that you serve. We've not begun to scratch the surface. And, I, and what I'm trying to say is, if I continue to preach to you, God, we would never move off of this subject. Do you understand that? I could go back and pull out things that I haven't even begun to talk about on subjects we've already covered. And so... Uh, we have a basic understanding of who God is. And that was my goal because I feel that we need to be foundationalized in that understanding. There are other communicable attributes that we have not covered. I've not covered God's mercy. I've not, I've not covered God's grace. I've not covered God's truth. Those are aspects of God's character that are 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 he who he is he is the God of truth Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life he says in another passage of scripture that it is impossible that God can lie because he is the God of truth God is a God of mercy he is the one that gives us he does not give us what we do deserve by our sins and iniquities but we're going to move off of that subject and we're going to proceed this morning into another great doctrine essential to the faith. And that is the study of anthropology. The first study we studied was theology. Ology simply means the study of. Theo, God. Ology, the study of. Theology is the study of God. Anthropology. Ology is the study of. Anthro is man. So anthropology is the study of man. So this morning, what we're going to engage our minds upon is the study of man. And what I want to preach to you this morning is God's image in man. We read in Genesis chapter 1. And in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible starts with its greatest subject, God. In the beginning, God. It does not assume that there is not a God. It simply states in plain English for all the world to know, in the beginning, there was a beginning, God. There is a God. And this God did something. This God is an active God. He's not a being of inactivity, but he's very active. It says that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What did he create them out of? He created them out of nothing. Because there was a beginning, there was no space, there was no time, there was no matter. God created all three. He created time, he created space, and he created matter. In the beginning, God created the heaven, there's space, and the earth, there's matter. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
there's time. At the very beginning of Genesis, you have time, space, and matter. How do I know that light is time? Well, when God created the sun, he said that these are to be for signs. In verse 14, he said, let the lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. What is that? A measurement of time. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So light is where our time comes from. It is that which divides a day from a night, a day from the years, and, and all these things are coming together to create time. So God creates space, matter, and time at the beginning of creation. God moves on from day one, and in day two, he divides the firmament uh, in, the, in, in the earth from the waters above and the waters beneath. Day three, verse nine, he causes the, the, the dry land to appear in one place. He establishes seeds, uh, seeds, and then in verse 11, it says, uh, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree uh, yielding fruit whose seed is in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. All that God had created up to this point was good. That means it was beneficial. It was, it was perfect in the way that God formed these things. He had created a functioning ecosystem. And it could operate in its own sphere independently. God created the earth to work as a machine, if you will. God created this to work within each other. And so he gave the, 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 the uh, water in the heavens to nurture the grass. And the grass is going to take light from the sun and create oxygen. And all these things, you see these things are working together. That God in his wisdom is forming the earth. And it is good. And it, and it reflects the glory of God. When you look out at creation and you see uh, the order that is, that is in the earth, when you see the atmospheric pressure and, and the rains descending and, and the plant life, uh, the animal life feeding off the plant life and the, and the plant life giving oxygen to the animal life and all these things working together, you cannot but confess there is an amazing all-wise God in control. We live in a complex universe that is filled with complex creatures. He says in verse 20, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven, and God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters bringeth forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. God creates a complex organism. All these other organisms he had created were not near as complex as the organism of life within these sea creatures and, and birds. Think of how complex a bird is. Think of his, his bone structure. His bones are not made like ours. Ours are dense, but a, bur, uh, a, a bird's bones are hollow in the inside with all these supporting structures within to give it strength, but yet light enough to be able to fly. He created them with wings and how their wings 
work together perfectly to move the air in such a way that they can rise above the earth. Beautiful, complex organisms. And these are good, and they reflect the glory of God. And then in verse 24, he creates the land complex creatures. And there he creates the cattle and the insects and, and, and the, uh, all the mammals that are on the earth. And they are good, and they reflect the glory of God. But God did all this. And while this reflects certain aspects of God, God did not just create these things to create these things. God is wise, and when God does something, he does something for a purpose. He didn't just do it because he could. Sometimes my kids do things simply because they can. They have no design. They have no purpose in what they're doing. They just do it because they can. Like when Levi destroys my shampoo bottle. He did that because he could. He didn't have any purpose to it. He just did it. <laughs> right? And so uh, sometimes we do things just because we can. But God does things with a purpose. A purpose that is known to him. And so in verse 26, we find that divine purpose. Why did God create the world? Why did God create lights in the heaven? Why is daytime and nighttime important? Why are, are days and years important? Why is days and years important? Why are the animal life important? We're going to find out. Verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female created he them. God says, let us. Let us. What is that? That's plural, right? If there's an us, there's more than one, correct? God did not say, let me create man in my image. He didn't use the singular. He used the plural. Let us Make man, singular, in our, plural, image, singular. God is teaching us from the very formation of man that he is a triune Godhead. Let us, plurality within the Godhead, make man in our image, singularity, so there is a plurality that is composed in a singularity, and that is what we know as the Trinity. It is unique personalities in one God. There's not three gods. There's not three gods. Are there, Levi? How many gods are there? There are about one only. The living and the true, right? That's one of his catechisms we ask him. How many gods are there? There's one God. There's the living and the true. This one God, though, is composed of three unique identities or personalities. And he's, he's composed in one 
being. So that God the Father is, is no more God than God the Son, and God the Son is no more God than God the Spirit. But God the Son is not God the Father, and God the Son is not God the Spirit, and God the Spirit is not God the Father. They are unique personalities in one God, and it's something that you and I cannot grasp in our finite minds. Let us, the triune Godhead, make man in our image after our likeness. Man is going to be a reflection of the Godhead. He's going to be an a, a image, if you will, a, an exact copy, that's what an image is, of God the Father, but he's not God. And there are characteristics that God possesses that we do not possess. Now, when God says, let us make man in our image, what does God mean by that? What does it mean for God to make man in his image? Does it mean that when God created man and he formed him a physical body on the earth and he, he took the dust and he raked it together with his hands maybe? I can just, you know, I, get, I have a wild imagination. And I can just imagine God kind of forming together, whirling around a body, and the, the sand is coming together, and you see this, this body begin to form, and I can kind of see God uh, forming two, two fingers and reaching down and popping right in the center and forming two eyes, you know, kind of like we would make a clay person, you know, with our fingers. That's just my wild imagination going crazy. But God takes the sand, and he, he whirls it around, Ribs begin to form, and femurs begin to form, and fingers begin to form, and eyes begin to form. And then you have this perfect body. And it says that God breathed into him, into his nostrils, into his nose, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He's alive. It's alive. So when we speak of man being made in God's image, are we implying that our bodies, our physical makeup, is, is a carbon copy of what God looks like? Is that what we mean by that? That God looks like us, that God has a body like us? No, we've already gone over this, right? That's why it's so important, because you see the doctrines of theology play into the doctrines of anthropology. You see that? So it's important that you understand theology in order to understand anthropology, the doctrine of man. We learned that in our theology, when we were studying the Bible and, and looking at God, we looked and we saw that the Bible is written in anthropomorphic language. You remember that term? Anthropomorphic language. In other words, God speaks to man in a way that he can understand and in a way that he would relate to. And we saw that God is a spirit and that spirits do not possess flesh and bone, that they do not have a body. Right? So God is a spirit. He does not possess a body. So when God created man in his image, we must understand that, not that he created us bodily to reflect who he looks like, but that our characteristics, the, the characteristics and the attributes that make us human are going to reflect the nature of God. So when God creates man in his image, the image that we bear are the characteristics and the attributes of God in one degree. Our 
existence. Our being, our purpose in the earth. This is why you were created. This is why you're alive today. Is to be a reflection of who God is. And by being a reflection of who God is, you are bearing uh, and bringing the glory to your creator. So, we looked at God as having incommunicable attributes. But there are aspects of God that he communicates to the creature. I want you to think with me this morning. When we look, when we look at man, and, and we're going to focus this morning of man in the garden. And I want, I want to make this very clear. Man in the garden was good. God created man to reflect his glory, and Adam and Eve did that by their creative order. They, they had the attributes of God indwelling within them. But something happened in the fall. The image of God was marred in the creature. No longer is man good. No longer is man righteous. No longer is man holy. No longer is man loving. No longer is man... Uh, Kind and, and, and all these things that reflect the glory of God, man is now broken. And so we see in Genesis when uh, Adam uh, began to have children and when he had Seth. It says that uh, in verse 3 of chapter 5, And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his after his image, and called his name Seth. After the fall, man now bears children, not in the image of God, but in the image of man. Sinful, depraved man. Because the image of God has been marred. So we are not a perfect representation of God anymore. But I want to look at that representation as he was created originally. First off, God is righteous. What does that mean? It means that God does what is right. When God created man, he created him with the precept to do right. He created him with a nature that was inclined and driven to do the right thing. He was righteous. He did that which is right. Not only was he righteous, but he was holy. Man was holy as his God was holy. You remember Peter's admonition in 1 Peter, he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. We now have that... In, 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 that, that uh, that command issued to us to be holy as God is holy. But before the fall, man was holy as God is holy. There was no command needed because that's who he was. You understand that? He was free from sin. There was no evil within his heart. There was no evil within his mind. Today, we are plagued with sinful minds and sinful hearts and sinful thoughts, and sinful actions. But before the fall, man was holy. There was none of that ingrained in his nature. He was holy through and through. God, God created man loving. In the New Testament, we are commanded to love our wives as 
Christ loved the church. We are admonished to love one another. Why are we, we told to do that? Why are we encouraged to do that? Because of our sin nature. Do you realize before the fall that the nature of man was such that he just loved? There was no hate. There was no bitterness. There was no wrong. He just loved. Wouldn't men and women just... Today, women just want to be loved by their husbands, right? Could you imagine Eve? Eve just messed her marriage all up, right? She had the perfect marriage, married to the perfect husband. He was literally perfect, guys. <laughs> He's not like me. I'm messed up. But Adam was perfect. He loved Eve all the time. All the time. He never said a... a, a, a coarse word or a harsh word to her. He looked after her for her benefit. And I imagine that what was going through the, the mind of Adam when he did take the fruit was, I just love my wife. <laughs> I'll follow her. So he has this capacity to love. He's kind. He's benevolent. Not only that, man is created with a will. Man is created with a free will. Because he is to reflect the glory of God. God's will is free. Would you not say that God has a freedom of the will? Yes. And God created man in the beginning. I want you to notice this. In the beginning... God created man with a free will. It was bound by its nature, and its nature was good, and so it was at liberty to do whatsoever it wanted to do. God created man wise. God created man with strength and power. Now, it's not the same as God's God's. Uh, Omnipotence is not the same as God's omniscience. Man has knowledge, but he does not have all knowledge. Man has power, but he does not have all power. So there are attributes of God that, that man did not have in their full extent because man is not infinite, but he did reflect it to some degree. So God creates the world. He creates man in his image to reflect his glory. In Romans chapter 1, we are told Romans chapter 1 Romans 1 and verse, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world. Since the beginning of the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. God created man, and this is a, an opinion, and I'm just going to lay this out there, that this is an opinion that is hotly debated. But in his original creation, and this is my view, you can take it or leave it. If you don't agree with it, we can talk about it afterwards. But this is my view. In the beginning, God created man, and when he created man, he said, let us... Make man in our image together as a trinity. 
the Trinity said, let us make man in our image. There's an understanding in anthropology whether man is a dichotomy or a trichotomy. Whether man is made of two parts or three. Whether the body is simply the housing of a spirit and soul, that's a dichotomy. Or whether the body, soul, and spirit are inseparably linked as a being. I believe that man in his original creation, and I want to stress that point, in his original creation was designed by God as a trichotomy in order to reflect the unity of the Trinity within the Godhead. Listen to this. Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils. Hold on. Let's stop right there. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. What is that? That's a body. You see that? That is a physical body. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. What is that? Breath is spirit. The Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. There's your life force. There's your life force. So God breathes into the physical body that he, that, he, uh, that he created. He breathed into his body the breath of life, the life force. He gave him a life force. And the union of the life with the body formed within man a soul. And that's your identity. That's your personality. That's who you are. And so man is a body, a soul, and a spirit. And I want you to think of this. The body, soul, and spirit dynamic in the original creation was never meant to be separated. What happens when you die? What happens when you die? Your body, your, your soul, and your spirit leave your body and go to be with the Lord. That's what happens. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What's present with the Lord? Your soul and spirit, your identity, who you are, you're personally there, and your life force. The spirit is your life force, is together with God. But your body is left here. Why does that happen? Why does that happen to us? Why is there a separation between your soul and spirit and your body? What did God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? Of every tree of the, uh, of the garden thou shalt freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The result of sin in the world is death. And so death marring the image of God, and that's what death does, it mars the image of God. When we die, our soul and spirit is separated from our body. But here's what I want to show you. Your identity is explicitly linked to your body. Do you realize that whenever God comes back, that your body, your physical body, the body that you lived in, your life, is going to be raised again 
If that was not, listen, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to listen to me very intently. If your body was inconsequential to your identity, God would just create you another physical body. Right? He would just, you, when your soul and spirit uh, arrive in glory, God would just say, poof, and create you another body. But that's not what he's going to do, is it? God's coming back for your body. Job would say, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and mine eyes shall see him, and not another's. I'm not going to get another set of eyes. God's going to raise up my physical body. Why is God doing this? Why is God raising this up? Because God created your soul and spirit to be in connection and unity with your body to reflect his glory in the Trinity. It is unique. It is important. The culmination of these three reflects the triune Godhead. Yes, sin marred that image, and today we, and that's why there's such a debate about this, I believe, because no one's taking into account the sin dynamic. Today, man does appear to be a dichotomy because of his separation from his body. But that's not what he was originally created for. And so you have to take into account what God intended man when he created him, and he never intended God, man to die. He, he, he created man to be united with his body forever. There are two ways that man reflects outside of his being, who he is, and, that, and what we just talked about is man's bearing the image of God in his being, in a triune nature, working together, and all these attributes are in these. You understand that Adam's body was holy. His, his, his body was righteous. You can't say that the, the, there, there's a separation there. But man reflects the image of God in two ways. Relationship and responsibility. Man bears the image of God two ways. Relationship and responsibility. Let me, let me talk about responsibility first. When he says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, he says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him, let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Listen to this. Verse 28, he says, He says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. Bring it under your control. Bring it under your authority. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now switch over to chapter 2 in verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So God gives man two fundamental responsibilities. He is going to be an authority in the earth. He's going to be a sovereign within in the earth. He's going to, to bear the authority in the earth. He's going to control the animal life. He's going to subdue the animal life. And not only that, he's going to take care of the animal life. He's going to care for the animals. And when he's put in the garden, he is commissioned with the task of keeping the garden. What does all this do? Man's responsibility is how he 
how he manifests the character traits that he has. If, if God created man in his image, but didn't give him any way to reflect that and to bring that out, how does that really glorify God? It doesn't, right? If he just has these attributes, but he's not utilizing these attributes, it doesn't glorify God, that he simply possesses them. So what does God do? God gives him responsibility so that God's wisdom, God's sovereignty, God's care and benevolence is manifested in man's work on earth. So God created you, listen children, God created you to work so that through your work, you're reflecting the glory of God by your utilization of your power, your strength, your wisdom, uh, your benevolence, your care. And all these things are reflective of God through your activity. Secondly, he is going to place you within a relationship. It's not good for man to be alone. And so he created Eve so that there is a dynamic between Adam and Eve that is also reflective of attributes within the Trinity so that there would be unity between the two, so that there would be communication between the two. God created man and woman to be social entities because God is. Through that relationship of husband and wife, we see kindness, we see love, we see aspects of God displayed in the marriage and paternal relationship. God, uh, man is made in God's image. But then he gave him a task. He placed him in the garden. He said, Be, he said, uh, he said, bring it into subjection to yourself, dress the garden, keep it, and here's a relationship for you to shew forth yourself. But then God said this, be fruitful and multiply. Now, when Adam and Eve are going to multiply, you multiply things that are of the same kind, correct? Right? When you multiply something, you are, you, are, you are increasing the volume of the same thing. Man was made in God's image. So when Adam and Eve had children in the garden, which they didn't, when Adam and Eve had children in the garden, what would they have brought forth? They would have brought forth children in God's image. Children that reflected the qualities and the nature and the characteristics of the God that had created them. Our task is still the same. We're still tasked with the responsibility of bringing forth children in the image of God. But here's the difference. We don't born children into the world any longer that are in the image of God. Psalms tells us, and we're going to look at this in further detail in another message, but Psalms tells us that the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go forth speaking lies. David would say, in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, you are no longer birthed into this world a righteous, holy, good, loving, kind individual. You're birthed into this world a monster of iniquity that does not reflect the glory of God, the image of God, but rather we reflect the image of Adam after the fall. The image of God is marred in our beings. So now the challenge of raising children has increased. We're still tasked with doing the same thing, 
multiplying, bearing children in the image of God, but now it doesn't come naturally. Now it takes work. Amen? You got little stubborn, rebellious sinners in your house, and you're going to try to make them righteous and holy and good and to do the right thing. Now it is a full-time job. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could just have children and they were just nice all the time? If they didn't fight, they didn't argue, if when you told them to do something, they said, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, I love you, and went and did exactly what they were told to do every time without saying, why? Why do I have to do it now? Why can't I do it later? That would be wonderful. That sounds like paradise. Oh, wait, it was. Until Adam messed it up. <laughs> Now we have sinners. Now we've got to mold them and guide them into bearing the image of God in their daily lives. God is a unique being. He's a wonderful being. And we were designed, our purpose is to reflect His glory. Side note, by the way, when you're born again, the image of God is created within you again. You are now holy in the eyes of God. You are now righteous in the eyes of God. Because the Spirit has stamped the image of Christ in your heart. And you're no longer in the eyes of God. Legally a sinner. This is our purpose. This is what we were created. To reflect the glory of God. God. Trust these words have been a benefit to you. May the Lord keep, bless you, keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, and give you peace.